Sorry, I jumped somebody's job. Somebody coming up to read the scripture for us? Thank you, Tim. We have double Tims for you this morning. I don't know, but uh, you were going to read the scripture and you wanted me to do the sermon or something. I don't know. <laughs> Open your Bibles, please, to um, John eight twenty one. My name is Tim Corey, not Tim Corbett. Um, been here at Faith, my family and I, for about 25 years. John eight twenty one through 30. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. So they said to him, uh, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. For he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. After he was saying these, as, excuse me, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Thank you, Tim's. I knew that I would do that when we started this practice of asking others to help us with the scripture and and make the text that we'd be teaching through that morning more prominent in the service. I knew I would jump the gun and get in front of somebody. So my apologies. Well, for those of you country music fans, I want you to savor the flavor this morning because I'm going to quote a song out of that musical genre of which I have only slightly become accustomed and okay to receive into my life. Uh, this is a genre of music that almost meant that the relationship between Christine Willette and Brent Small never happened because she was a lot country and I was a lot rock and roll. And uh, over the years, as I've become a little older and more sentimental, I kind of get the country thing. I understand some of it. And uh, a song in the last few years came out that caught my attention by Dirks Bentley. It's called Burning Man. I'm sorry for those of you that know it. Now it's going to be in your head all morning long. <laughs> and uh, and he, he says this in the chorus of the song. He says, I'm a little bit steady, but still a little bit rolling stone. I'm a little bit heaven, but still a little bit flesh and bone. Little found, little don't know where I am. I'm a little bit holy water, but still a little bit burning man. 
Now, he says it a lot cooler than I just did. But you get the gist. We relate to this mindset of having one foot in the things that we should do better, the things that we know are better for us, and then one foot in the, what I would refer to as the pull of gravity in this world, you know, kind of the, 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 the way that I, I typically live or the trouble I get myself into that I, I get some of it right. Some days it comes easy and then there's other times where I just kind of get, can't get out of my own way. And we find some comfort in, or, or I would even say perhaps even some excuse in the ambiguity of that mindset. We, we can, we can be kind of bleeding through both of them and we kind of feel okay because now I'm just like you. And I think that's part of the appeal of a song like this is it's relatable. And we kind of go, yeah, I think he's kind of singing my anthem. Sometimes I get it. Sometimes I don't. And I'm going to be okay with that. I get that to, to a large extent because we are still human beings. The moment that we gave our lives to Christ, he didn't just go, now you're in heaven. No more worries, no more pain, no more struggle, no more temptation, none of those things. No, we know that even though we've surrendered our lives to Christ, if you have, that you still have a, a, a terrible draw. What this uh, gravitational pull in this life is all about. And there are days where we get it right and some days where we get it completely wrong. Last week, Jesus had indicated to us in our text in John 8 that there is a great distinction between light and dark. And this is the theme that I'm finding. The more that we study this is he's trying to get us to see there are two different lives that we have the opportunity to live. One is in Christ and one is without him. And so rather than us finding some comfort in the gray, which this world, this system that we live in, would love to, to, to just continue in some of the gray and say, you'll just figure it out as we go. Jesus is saying, no, there's stark contrast to the two lives that are available to us. The two paths that we would take. And Jesus had said to us in verse 12 last week that again, he says to them, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we had made the point that we said, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a true disciple, then you're pursuing him. You're following him into the light out of an urgency, a dependency. I can't just kind of ho-hum my way through this life. There's too much at stake. I don't want to be found outside of his will. So wherever the light goes, I'm kind of running to catch up and I'm going to jump in that light because as soon as the darkness creeps in, things go wrong for me. Matters of survival or what I would say are matters of life and death for our purposes today do not have the luxury of ambiguity. We don't have the option to just say, hey, sometimes I'll get it right, sometimes I won't. No big. When we're dying, when we need real answers to our very real problem, we can't settle for a lack of distinction or hope or light or what Jesus is going to tell us is life. So in order to find real hope, we need to embrace a word that I'm going to use over and over again this morning, which is distinction. And that distinction is found in Christ because he is holy. He is set apart. He is unique. So let's come into our text. We're going to jump down just a little bit from where Tim had read for us earlier to see that there are two distinct worlds that Jesus is presenting to his audience today. And in verse 23, he says to them, you are from below and I am from above. He doesn't mean you're from below. We would think, well, from below, he's talking about hell. No, he's saying you're from here, 
from below where I'm from, you're of this world. I'm not of this world. There is a distinction between this world and that world, the one that he's referring to. And Jesus is using a word that it would appear that uh, most of you, if not all of you, I can't see you all clearly, but it seems like you all put some thought into world this morning. And you're going, what are you talking about? Well, the word world means cosmos, which is order. And it would often be used if you were getting ready for the day or you'd make yourself presentable that you were ordering your appearance, you're ordering your system around you, you're ordering your life. And Jesus says that there's an order here and there's an order there. You're from this order down below. The world in which we live, this is what I often use the phrase, that, that word world, and the scriptures often use the word world. Cosmos is, used, cosmos is used a bunch of times, 70 some odd times in the New Testament, to talk about the system that we live in or amongst, full of its ideologies, its, its values, its philosophies, and it's made up of the people who are really opposed to the Lord in the world system. The one from below is a system that is meant to move us away from the belief that there is a God and that Jesus is his son. I often run into this in pastoral ministry, as many pastors do, when we are um, striving to counsel other people and disciple them in the word of God. And, and psychology has come so heavily into our culture these days. And even though it has uh, gifted us in a lot of uh, techniques and, and um, uh, 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 therapies and different things like that that help people get through the day, we have to remember that the system, the original order of that system was created by those who either wish to explain away our dependence on God or wanted to justify behavior that they knew God wouldn't approve of. If you look back to the early, the Freud and Skinner and Rogers and those sorts of things, those philosophies, those things established to explain away our need to see that there is a heavenly system of which we can conduct ourselves by. And the difficulty comes when we as followers of Jesus Christ lean more on those answers for how to get through life and how to endure our struggles and things, adopting those uh, techniques and those things from that system, not recognizing their origins. Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. It's from that world. Our, our, we, we, we think a lot about citizenship today and what country we belong to and that sort of thing. So Paul's words are profound when he says our citizenship, where we have our card from, is from a, another world. It is from that world, not this one. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this citizenship that we have is is twofold. It's positional. It happens for us when we give our lives to Christ, when we surrender to us, as Tim earlier said, when we surrender to the Lordship of Christ and we follow him, then our positional citizenship is there in heaven. But if we're not careful, we can start thinking, so that's for later. That's for another day. That's after I finally close my eyes, take my last breath, and then I will enter into heaven. But it's also a practical citizenship that means that we do not have to wait for that day in order to experience living in that kingdom. Not fully, mind you. That would still be the gravitational pull and the temptation and all the things that we have now. But we still have heaven available to us. So that citizenship is something that we start walking in or living in and living by even now. 
For a long, long time, a church has, uh, Christianity has used the phrase, we live in, but not of the world. And I think by and large, it's a very helpful phrase. We live in a system, but we don't live by it. We don't live of it so that it, it, it controls everything we do or informs all of our decisions or our path. But it's a word that we have to be, it's a phrase we have to be a little bit careful of. Um, when I was living in Massachusetts and I was doing, I was trying my hand at uh, sales and it was kind of a, um, I was selling uh, heating and ventilation, air conditioning equipment and stuff in residential homes. And uh, one time in church, I came across a guy who um, was was just visiting town, had a southern accent, was a good, clean cut, clean cut Christian guy. And when he asked me what I did for a living, I said, oh, I've just started with this company. I'm selling, you know, heating and air conditioning equipment and stuff like that. He says, well, ironically, uh, I am representing a friend of mine who's got a a really big home down the street, some kind of mansion or something. He says he's brought me in from Texas or somewhere down south to be the general contractor of his home remodel. He's away and I'm managing the, uh, the uh, rebuild of his house or whatever it is, the remodeling of his house. Would you come and quote a system for me? It'd be great to have another brother in Christ be there and do this. And I said, well, sure, you know. And so I pull in. I'm right down the street from Mitt Romney's house and everything. I'm pulling down this long drive. I'm like, wow, this is going to be a sweet commission. It's going to be great. And my eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I go in this house and we're sitting in this sprawling room and I'm just talking to him and he's as nice as can be and everything. And in the middle of our conversation, one of his other contractor guys comes in, you know, very blue collar and very just there to get his job done and everything. He's not worried about what we're talking about or not talking about. And he comes in, he has a question for his boss and he says something along the lines of what we need to do or this part didn't come in or something. He says, okay. And in the course of the conversation, I am getting to a point, my apologies. In the course of the conversation, he drops a couple of words that we good Christian fellas don't share. And uh, so I'm not thinking much of it. That's the job site, right? It's what happens everywhere and stuff. And and my friend's face changes and he says, well, just do this. And the guy walks away before the guy could even get out of the room. He looks at me, he says, you see what I have to deal with, don't you? And I'm sitting there and the guy that was leaving kind of paused as he was walking out. Like, I don't know if you're picking up what I'm putting down here, but it was really uncomfortable in this giant echoey room that here we are supposed to be two Christian brothers displaying the grace of Christ in our life in the world surrounded by people that don't believe like us. And he's got to call it out so blatantly just because he swore. Isn't that just disgusting? It was that kind of, I don't know why I had to put the Southern accent on it. I'm really in the character at the moment. Now, ironically, as I got back to my office, still kind of seeing dollar signs and things and talked to my boss about, Hey, I got this project and it was way over my head. I didn't know fully what I was doing, so I needed some help and everything. And he says, oh, this house. Oh, yeah, everybody in the business has been yanked around by this house over and over. They never pulled the trigger. They're not honest with what they're looking for, all this. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy was so offended that somebody who doesn't follow the Lord used bad language, and yet his reputation was bringing the name of Christ into the tank. You see, it's, it's not enough for us to say that when we're in the world, but not of the world, it's because we don't want to get any disgusting stuff on us that Christians just wouldn't do. It, it matters how we live in the world that we're in. 
and conduct ourselves to a heavenly regard. This is how Jesus says it as he's praying. It's often referred to as our high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. So we'll be getting there probably in a few years, but we'll be getting there to John 17 and, and cover this. So let's get a sneak preview of one of the, uh, one of the many important aspects of this prayer in John 17 verse 14. I have given them your word. He's talking about us. He's talking about the followers. He's talking about the disciples that God has given to Jesus, those who would believe on him. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Hear this now, verse 15. I do not ask that you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. David Mathis wrote an article for Desiring God Ministries that says about this text, Maybe it would serve us better, at least in light of John 17, to revise the popular phrase in but not of the world in this way. Not of, but sent into. The beginning place is being not of the world and the movement is towards being sent into the world. The accent falls on being sent with a mission to the world, not being mainly on a mission to disassociate from the world. Many of you would have a very similar Christian experience that I have had where it felt like the the emphasis was on the disassociation with the intent to show others that, see, we're living a cleaner, better life, and they'll want that. There wasn't the same kind of emphasis on being able to be in the world and not being afraid of the world acting like the world. So can we be heavenly minded, but no earthly good, as the phrase is often says? I think being heavenly minded while being in the world still produces a great benefit, not just to us, but to the world around us. It brings peace because as the world sees and as you and I experience a contentedness because of a future reward, in other words, this world, we know what's going to happen to it. We know what this system was designed to do and it's designed to fail. So we don't put our hopes and trust in the success of this system. And so it allows us to kind of walk above the drama of the day, if you will, not being dragged into all the fear and the gravity of the system of the day. There's peace in that. There's wisdom in it as well, because an eternal kingdom conduct, if we are, for lack of a better phrase, I don't really like this phrase, it's just kind of coming to me in the moment, but for lack of a better phrase, the the eternal kingdom rules, the code of conduct that we live by, If it's from a world that will never fail, will never die, will never perish, and we're applying it into the world that we're living today, there's wisdom in that. In other words, we walk in wisdom when we don't demand perfection from broken systems. Why would I expect that this world that Jesus is saying is from below, which is destined for failure, destined for destruction? Why would I expect that it's going to fulfill me? And it brings us purpose. 
when we're heavenly minded, when we're in this world, but not of this world, when we're in this world, but sent into this world, we become focused on bringing others with us. Their real need is for forgiveness, not just life fulfillment. The church doesn't ex- exist just so that we can help people have psychological healing or the church doesn't exist just so that we can have people be more financially prosperous or all the other things that the church unfortunately is bought into. We exist to point people to the forgiveness that is found only in Jesus Christ. It puts us on mission. These are the two distinct worlds that Jesus is introducing to his followers. He says, you are from this world from below and I am not. And there are two distinct destinations. Let's look at verse, uh, well, several verses here. Let's go back up to 21 and 22 and we'll jump down to 24. He says, so he, he says to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me. This is an interesting phrase here. You will seek me. In other words, it could mean one of two things. Let me just pause on the text here. Uh, you will seek me in, in, in such a way that after I'm gone, or he'll say here in a minute, after I'm exalted, you might go, oh, he was the real one. We certainly know that became the case. There was a soldier at the cross who confessed that with his lips. Surely this was the son of God that many conversions came after he was uh, after he was crucified because of the preaching and the power of the apostles and things. So that's true. That did happen after he was gone. There was still a seeking and they found him. It also could mean, and I don't think these are mutually exclusive, but it also could mean that after I'm crucified, after I'm gone and you feel like you've won, you're still going to be on the hunt for the real Messiah. There's something in you. There's this, there's this palpable thirst that you're saying, I just, we have to find the real one. doesn't seem to be him because we hung him up on a tree and you're going to keep seeking. You're going to keep seeking me or one like me. And you will die in your sin because you're still looking for someone other than me is what he's saying. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, what is he going to kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. This is the ultimate insult because in Jewish theology and even the historians of the time would say it doesn't get any darker in hell than for the person that ended their own life. And so they're saying, since we would never be guilty of doing that to ourselves, he's saying he's going somewhere that we, we even couldn't find him or follow. He must be talking about offing himself because he'll be tucked away in a place in hell that we'll never get to because we're better than that. Can you imagine saying this to the king of kings and lord of lords in a sense saying, what are you going to kill yourself so that you end up in the darkest part of hell? We jump down to verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe, Tim mentioned this, you really did steal some thunder of mine. (laughs) For unless you believe the sin of unbelief, this is the crux of the whole thing. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. When you and I, if you and I die in our sins, in unbelief, it is this ultimate eternal separation, never to be in the presence of God again. It is the punishment, or as Romans 6.23 says, the wages, the what we've earned from our sin is our death, our, our ultimate separation for all of eternity. 
But it's not just a future separation. It's, it's something that we walk in even today. We know the phrase, the walking dead, and it's this daily destruction, or as Ephesians 4 would say, it's the futility of our minds. Let me just look at a verse and a half here. If we go to Ephesians 4 and 17, we'll jump partway through. It says, you must no longer walk as the unbelievers do in the futility of their minds. And what's going on in this word futility is picture brick wall, head to brick wall over and over again. No matter what I do, no matter what system I play a part of, no matter how I expect to strategize and get ahead or scheme my way through life, I keep running into this brick wall over and over and over. Why? Because of my unbelief. Don't continue to walk into the brick wall as the unbelievers do in the futility of their mind. For they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And you and I who are in Christ, the key for us where we found the grace to believe so that we're no longer banging our heads on that brick wall unless we choose to, as Paul is warning, is because we were brought from ignorance to revelation, but only by the grace of God. We weren't smarter than the others. We weren't luckier than the others. The grace had been revealed to us, and we surrendered to it. And so there's a patience, there's an understanding, there's a compassion that develops for us as we understand that as somebody is banging their head on a brick wall over and over and over again, that's to break our hearts. That is supposed to move us to a compassion to understand that this can't be fun for them either. I I slowed down on one phrase that Jesus made that I want us to camp on for just a minute here. He says, I am he. Unless you believe that I am he, in verse 24, you will die in your sins. That prompted the question, so who are you anyway? But I, I want you to hear it a little bit different. It's not just so, well, who are you? Who are you? Jesus has been going on with like this for three years. He, his works have led the way. He is famous. He's well known. They know what he's claiming. But this conversation in chapter eight is starting to ratchet up. It gets so hot beginning in points like this. This is like halfway on the meter so far. And as we finish out this chapter, we're going to see that it gets so hot that they're going to be picking up stones to kill him on the spot. They're no longer scheming. Let's see if we can trap them over here. They're like, we can't let this go on anymore because of statements like this. Uh, The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Bible. It's what they would know at that time the most. It's the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Bible. It was translated in the Greek for the common language. And they would have understand, uh, understood this phrase, this uh, ego I me, to have been placed in the way that it was like this. Jesus would have said, unless you believe that ego I me, you will die in your sins. We have this little phrase, am he, to help us out with what's being said. But all they heard was, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Those of you that know your Bibles, you would recognize that phrase of something that the Lord told Moses back in the Old Testament when he said, I'm about to go to your people and I'm going to say, this is what God said for me to do. And I'm going to lay out all these plans and this law and I'm going to lay it all out. And they're going to say to me, because I know these people, well, who's what's God's name anyway? What name do you come in? So what do I tell them? In verse uh, Exodus 314, God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, you say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's a weird title for us. We would, we would think that that's more Popeye than anything else. What, what does that mean? I am sent you. And, and I don't claim to know all the depth of the meaning of this, but imagine God saying, I do not have to name myself for these people because I am God. And that's who I am. You tell them that I am who I am in a sense, and you'll have to deal with who I am. That's what you need to say to them. And Jesus is saying, unless you believe that I am the phrase and the name that struck fear in the hearts of generations of Jews for all those years. Jesus is saying, that's me. That is cause to start a riot. And that's what Jesus is saying. Unless you recognize that I am the one true God, you will die in your sins. The destination of life that Jesus is pointing out to us is an eternal presence of God where our, our sins are forgiven and we found life in him. We said that in Romans 6.23 that the wages or the earnings of our sin was death, but there's a great turning in that phrase. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The thing that plagues us the most is our eternal future. The thing that we don't have an answer for in and of ourselves is our eternal punishment and our eternal debt. And that is the thing that Jesus has paid for. It is the free gift of God, though it cost him everything. He's made it free to you and I. And it's eternal life, eternity with Christ Jesus, our Lord. But it's also one of daily purpose and direction. So just as we looked at Ephesians 4 and saw that it was the futility of our minds banging our heads against the brick wall, there's hope. Verse 23 says, but be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This new self that we have is going to be able to walk in right standing with God. We could never say that before knowing him. We could never say that before believing in the I am and that he is Jesus. We have righteousness. We have holiness, which is distinction. We're set apart. We are loved uniquely by God. We are protected uniquely by his, by his uh, strength. We are guided uniquely by his spirit. We are saved uniquely by his son. This is what it means for you and I to be holy. And this is now ours. And that is the renewal in our spirit of our minds. This is the destination of life that Jesus is indicating. All of these things are available if you would just believe. And of course, we know his audience, even though we saw at the end of the text that many of those in the crowd believed those that were of authority and those that were being threatened of their institution they wouldn't allow themselves to believe, no matter how much hope was dripping from the words of Jesus. But yet he insists there's only one distinct path to life. There's an interesting phrase in verse 29. I'm going to start there and we're going to jump back up to verse 28. Put this out of order just a little bit. Verse 29 says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. This is the presence that comes from the Lord God for those who follow Christ. How can Jesus say that? Because he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
when I saw that phrase again, when I was getting ready for this message, I was like, okay, so that means I need to tell the people that if you want the presence of God with you, you have to do the things that please God. So I want your marching orders to be do better for God. So he won't leave your side. That was my first sort of um, frail interpretation of what I was reading until it struck me, perhaps probably because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, no, the gospel is saying to the people of God and to those who are hearing for the first time that you can't, you can't do everything that pleases God. You and I, in our best efforts, we fall short over and over and over again. The scripture says that our best, um, uh, all of our greatest Our greatest offerings are like filthy rags before the Lord. So does that mean we're not promised the presence of God? But Jesus is saying, I, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I will take your failures, your shortcomings, and I will still see it through all the way to the cross. I will, I will lay my life down for you so that all the things you can't seem to get right, I will take care of for you. And if you just do the work we saw earlier in the scripture, if you do the work of believing in me, then I will apply all of those acts of goodness. What we would say is the righteousness of Christ. I will apply that to your life. And because of that, you will have my presence forever. You see, this is when we talk often about, well, I don't really have a, re- a religion. I have a relationship or we try to explain what's the difference between this religion and Christianity and stuff. This is it in a nutshell is the two words do and done. Religion calls you and I to do more, to work harder, to be better. Christianity, the message of the cross is it's done. He did it. Receive it. Only one person can say they always do the right thing. And the truth of the matter is that's what God requires. He requires absolute perfection. That would make you and I sunk right from the get-go. We needed Jesus to do this for us. No matter how often we would echo the words of Paul and say, like in 2 Corinthians 5, that we make it our aim to please him. That is our, our motivation. That is our goal. I want to try to put a smile on God's face. I want to try, again, Tim, stealing my thunder, but uh, uh, as his phrase, we want to try to live a good life. It's not because we have the grace of God that we say, now I don't need to do anything, but all I can offer to the Lord is my aim. Nothing I actually accomplish will impress him all that much because he's perfect. He's already done it all perfectly. It's just my aim that I can offer to him. But ultimately, his pleasure in me is only going to be found in Christ as it's applied to my life. What we need to understand this morning is that through faith, which is all we can offer, the perfect obedience of the Son of God applies to your resume. The question was asked earlier, if I got to the gates of heaven, this isn't something that comes from scripture that we use this phrase, but just helps us picture these kinds of things. I got to the gates of heaven and and God said, why should I let you into heaven? Then we would hold out a resume that has all kinds of terrible things and all kinds of garbage and all that sort of stuff. But at the very end, it would say, I believed that Jesus good righteousness and forgiveness was applied to my life. God would then say, well, why don't you just get to that part? All this other stuff I've already taken care of and paid for. 
Backing up to verse 28, to put this a little out of order, I also think that we need to have a recognition of what real victory looks like. Jesus continues to talk to them. He says, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, that doesn't mean when we just kind of applaud him and exalt him that way, although there is that meaning of lifted up, is that exaltation. But he's referring to as well his sacrifice. He knows what's coming. When you have, when you have picked up the cross and stunk it, stuck it in the ground like that and, and that slamming thud happens when, when I am hanging there exposed for all to see, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. It'll occur to you. I think we just killed the Son of God. And you'll see that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. The Jewish audience there would misread the death of Jesus as the end of the false Messiah. They had seen others come and go. They probably didn't see the other ones make nearly the impact this one did. But those that were choosing not to believe in what was very obvious and right before them, when they saw the death on the cross, when he was hanging there for all to see, they would say, you see, I told you he wasn't going to win this one. All that he said, you see, they misread the victory because ultimately he still accomplished everything that he set out to accomplish. And in fact, he won everything that he set out to win. And that is he paid the price for the forgiveness of our sins. Because when you live in this world, when you're stuck in this system, you start to get things like victory all wonky and you start to see winning is only in the immediate. There's no sense of seeing down the road or looking at the bigger picture. It's all in the here and now. And if you're not winning in the here and now, then you're not winning. You are of this world, but I am not. Because life ultimately conquers. Uh, to wrap things up, I thought that I would pull out a video that we used a couple years ago in our Good Friday service that was pretty well received. And I think that um, it's an opportunity for us to see what was at stake. And my prayer for us this morning as we see this, it's a little bit dramatic and things, but my, my prayer as we see this is it's a reminder for those of us that are in Christ that we have left a distinct life of the life of this world and exchanged it for a life in the heavenlies, that our citizenship is in heaven. And for those of you that have not yet believed on Jesus, if you've been kind of showing up or you've been hearing the message or you've been thinking and contemplating, my prayer is for you is that you see that there is a real distinction between the life that you're living and the life that is being offered to you. Don't settle for a path that only ends in death today when the invitation for real life is still available to you. There's a real destination called heaven. So don't wait until you die to realize it's true. Heaven isn't just for then, it's for today. And there's a real payment for your sin. Don't reject the obedience of Jesus on your behalf. He went to the cross to pay your penalty of sin and it worked. He pleased his father in order to remove your penalty. I pray that's what you hear this morning as you watch this video. And as soon as this video closes, I'm going to ask the worship team to close us out in song. Thank you. Dear.
Jesus. Who do you think you are? You came riding into town. You claimed to be God. The people lined the streets and shouted, Hosanna! Oh, it looked like they loved you. But they didn't. They did not love you. They did not heed your words. They were not your friends. They were your enemies. And before the week had even ended, they crucified you. And now, here you are, nailed on a cross, naked and weak. Of course, the only reason I'm here is because I know what you're really up to. You are paying for something. You have been crowned with guilt, the shame of all the people you loved. The mistakes of every person, that nagging selfishness that emerges from the womb like a cancer that never stops growing, the cheating, the backstabbing, the despicable things they wish upon others, all the secrets kept under wraps, kept behind closed doors. I can see you pushing with your feet, trying to breathe underneath the weight of it all, all the petty anger of prideful men the blatant disregard for others, the lack of compassion, the insistence of entitlement, the material obsessions, the unspeakable amounts of money they spend on looking good while their fellow humans are starving. What does it feel like knowing that all of this is on you now? Every divorce, every abandonment, every deadbeat dad, every gunshot, every kid lying dead in the street, the men who kidnap girls and sell their dignity for a few dollars, all the insecure rage and outbursts, the I hate you, the I'll do what I want, the pornographic addictions, the jealousy, the idols, the celebration of vanity, the constant pursuit of look at me, look at me, look at me. Well, now we're looking at you. Jesus. And all I can see is a world drowning in sin and suffering. I realize these were not your doing. Nonetheless, I'm happy for you to be taking the blame. Humanity has done a fine job with this, but I'll take it from here. Before we're done, I just have to ask, what kind of person claims he can forgive the whole world? Who do you think you are? Sincerely, Death. Dear Death, I got your letter. My apologies for it taking a few days to write back. I had some important work to finish. I know you weren't expecting me to reply, but I'm always eager to provide the answer to a good question. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you who I am. I am the eternity before history. I am the potter who spun the galaxies. I am the spirit over the deep and the one who tells mountains to migrate. I am the cloud of day, the fire of night. I am the co-conspirator behind the scandal of grace. I am the keeper of the books. 
I am well aware of the debts that line the pages of every generation, and today I am stamping each and every one of them paid in full. Who do I think I am? I'll tell you. I am the just and furious wrath that makes hell look like a campfire. And I am the towering wave of mercy that can quench its thirsty flame. I am the billowing storm of love that sits on every horizon. And my goodness rains down on both the wicked and the righteous. I am the redeemer of wasted years. I am the welcome home to every prodigal son. I am the voice in the ear of every young girl whispering, I created you, and you were created beautiful. I am faithful even to the faithless. My name is salvation. My name is power, even power over you. Do you really want to know who I am? I am the foot on your head. I am the spear in your side. I am the one author of this story. I am the one holding the pen. And I will block you out with a single stroke of my hand. I will have the last word because I am the word. And death, I am here to give you a word. On Friday, you weren't attending my funeral. You were attending yours. The nails in my hand will be the ones in your coffin. And just to be clear, I was not a victim of human plans, and I was certainly never a slave to you. I am the victor. I am the master. I am the one who sets the captives free. And not only have I broken your grip on me, but I will pry your fingers from all who call my name. You are done. You are powerless. Your work is null and void. Pack up your bags. Go and tell your friends. It is finished. And in case you're still wondering, who do I think I am? I'll tell you who. I am. Sincerely, Jesus. Jesus.